0: Did you know that the U.S. Army once used camels to haul equipment across the American Southwest? Or that many presidents gave their best speeches while drunk? You didn't learn these stories in high school because your teachers thought they weren't important or outright false. After all, history isn't right unless it's extremely boring. Those teachers couldn't be any more wrong If you're a fan of unknown history, I recommend you also check out the podcast History Unplugged. It's hosted by Scott Rank, and he looks at the forgotten stories like these that changed our world. Every week he interviews best-selling book authors and historical consultants for movies like Steven Spielberg's Lincoln and video games like Assassin's Creed. He also dives deep into topics like medieval healthcare, spies in World War II, and the history of prostitution from ancient Sumeria to Victorian England. You can listen to a sample episode here and subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform or go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com. Welcome
1: to the History Unplugged podcast. The unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. If you're the leader of a nation, does it pay to be completely crazy? Does it pay to be absolutely unhinged? If you're not in a democracy, if you work as a dictator or maybe a monarch in times past, the answer appears to be yes. And I should note that you can't just do it halfway. If you're going to be unhinged, you have to go absolutely all out. An eccentric autocrat can stay in power for decades in spite of, or actually because of, his ostensibly insane power. And I'm not just throwing this out here as a hypothetical. These are the exact questions that people ask themselves after the death in 2011 of Libyan dictator, Colonel Muammar al-Qaddafi. He managed to hold on to power in the North African nation for 42 years, despite his highly eccentric behavior. Before his death, he became infamous for an incoherent speech at the United Nations, in which he asked whether swine flu was man-made, and you can see a good parody of this on Saturday Night Live. He offered to move the United Nations headquarters to Libya to prevent jet lag among other world leaders, saying it was more centrally located than New York, and suggested that Israel and Palestine be combined into one state, called Izratine. At other times during his really long rule of his country, he used his position to call for the end of Switzerland and contemplate conspiracy theories such as Israeli intelligence assassinating JFK. He was escorted by an all-female contingent of bodyguards, also was parodied in the movie The Dictator. He wrote a book of teachings called The Green Book that claimed to offer the answers to all human problems in three parts. The first, the solution to democratic problems, then the solution to economic problems, and finally the solution to social problems. Gaddafi also put to death anyone who was perceived to threaten his regime, and he had the resources to locate these would-be plotters. An estimated 10-20% to of the population were state security informants. Libya was the most censored country in the Middle East and North Africa in 2011, according to the Freedom of the Press Index. Gaddafi's strong-arm policies let his citizens know how they would be treated if anyone fell out of favor with him. Earlier in his reign, he expelled Libya's Italian community, exhumed bodies of Italians from Libyan graveyards, and broadcasted the gruesome spectacle on television. Because of his paranoid eccentric rule, Libyans were willing to take up arms against him during the Arab Spring uprising of 2011 when NATO declared Libyan airspace a no-fly zone, enabling rebels to hunt down Qaddafi and his sons. But their overthrow only raises the obvious question that everybody was asking. Why didn't Libyans rebel decades sooner and save them all this misery? Qaddafi had always been a craze leader, he didn't suddenly begin to curtail human rights and promote himself at the end of his reign so bombastically. How could any dictator who had such a loose relationship with reality last so long? David Brooks of the New York Times argued that it was precisely because of his insanity that he reigned for nearly half a century. If a leader wants to crush the rule of law in any hint of a democratic process, Brooks said, He is far better off completely destroying any means of a civil society than leaving remnants of it around that support human rights to remind the people what they are missing. He said, The paradoxical fact is that if you want to stay in office as a dictator, it's better to be a narcissistic totalitarian than a run-of-the-mill autocrat. Megalomaniacs like Qaddafi seek to control every neuron in their people's heads and to control every aspect of life. They destroy all outside authority in civil society. They personalize every institution so that things like the army exist to serve their holy selves rather than the nation at large. They are untroubled by doubt or concern for the good opinion of others, since they already possess absolute truth. They are motivated to fulfill the world historical mission and have no interest in retiring peacefully to some villa. Jean Kirkpatrick was right years ago to make the distinction between authoritarian dictatorships and totalitarian ones. The totalitarian ones are both sicker and harder to dislodge. Gaddafi's unhinged narcissistic oddness seems to be the key to his longevity. So remember, if you're going to be a tyrant, be a wacko. It's safer. So in this episode, I'm going to be looking at the lives of some of the most unhinged leaders in history and how they guided the destinies of their countries or their states or their monarchies or duchies with only a very loose connection to reality. Now, there are different types of insane leaders, and we're going to be looking at two different categories of them. The first suffered from mental illness and psychological disorders. These include such leaders as George III, infamously the leader of Britain during the American Revolutionary War. He suffered from the hereditary blood disease porphyria, as did many other European monarchs, who were all loosely related. Another member of this type is Ibrahim I, the Ottoman sultan, who is known today in Turkey as Dedi Ibrahim, or Ibrahim the Mad. He was in prison for several decades before he became a ruler that, due to his miserable upbringing, caused sociopathic tendencies, leading him to do such things as practice archery on his court subjects. The second type of mentally unhinged ruler suffered from self-inflicted madness by being intoxicated with power, like Gaddafi. They slid into a condition of megalomania and self-aggrandizement by isolating their nations and being surrounded by sycophants who never questioned their decisions or were too afraid to. This includes such 20th century autocrats as Albanian head of state Enver Hoxha, who did such things as ruin the national currency by making it conform to a superstition with astrology. Another person that I am really intrigued by and will talk at length about is former Turkmenistan president for life, Akbar Turkmenbashi who renamed Constellations and Days of the Week after himself and his mother. So while such stories are amusing, the idea I want to explore is the addictive nature of power and the effects it has on those who cling to it for too long. But also, what does it mean about the structure of power when somebody who doesn't have their full mental faculties can manage to be moderately successful for decades and somehow their nation doesn't completely collapse? Is it because they have good checks and balances? Or maybe a ruler or head of state doesn't have the power they say they do. Or maybe their reign just gives us an example of what social collapse looks like. But because we have enough examples in history of people who aren't all mentally there ruling a nation, it raises the question of why this holiday tolerates them for so long. Finally, I want to look at if the tendency of unhinged rulers is more of a relic of the age of monarchs. And when you have hereditary rulership. Where the son or daughter needs to be on the throne, and due to inheritance laws in the Middle Ages, you're incentivized to put a family member, you're incentivized to put a family member in power. So we'll look at the question on whether rulers who are mentally unstable and don't just have delusions of grandeur are a relic of earlier times, or they'll still be with us for the long haul. The first person to discuss, among history's most insane rulers, is Roman emperor Caligula. And in my discussion of all these insane rulers, I'm going to have to do a lot of caveats because when historical sources are describing the outlandishness of a ruler, many times they're not looking for historical fact, but they have an agenda for doing so. And we have to constantly question and interrogate the sources. And I'll get into that in a second, but really, come on. We want to hear fun stories about how crazy some rulers could be. So I'm going to give you that right off the top. I'm going to talk about Caligula claims about him not saying they're necessarily true and i'll explain all those caveats after i get into the crazy stories about caligula so let's jump right in if you know about caligula you might know about the very infamous 1979 movie which is as wide release as porn can possibly get i haven't seen it really don't care to describe scenes in the movie but that is the most recent depiction of caligula in popular media Now, something that happened a little bit before that was actually a painting that artist Salvador Dali produced in 1971, and when he set out to paint a depiction of the infamous Roman emperor, he chose to depict the thing nearest and dearest to the crazed emperor's heart, his horse, Inquitatus. The painting, Le Cheval de Caligula, shows the pampered pony in all his royal glory. It's wearing an opulent crown and clothed in fine garments. While the gaudy clothing of the horse is historically correct, according to some sources, for once in his life, the Spanish surrealist artist is guilty of severe understatement. Caligula, who reigned from 37 to 41 AD, was the first emperor with no memory of the pre-Augustan period and therefore had no compunction about establishing a personality cult, ruling with absolute autocracy, demanding his subject's worship, and treating his horse better than royalty. According to the Roman historian Suetonius, he gave Incitatus 18 servants, a marble stable, an ivory manger, rich red robes, and a jeweled collar. He required that those passing by bow to his horse and demanded that be fed oats mixed with the flecks of gold and wine delivered by fine goblets. Dignitaries were forced to tolerate the horse as a guest of honor at banquets. This episode was but one example of the deranged excesses to which Caligula lived and what led to his violent death at the hands of his enemies. In the four short years that Caligula served as the emperor of Rome, he built for himself a reputation as a man who was completely committed to his lusts at the expense of his empire. He used his authority, influence, and wealth to satisfy his sexual appetite, build his own ego, and antagonize the Roman seminate. This behavior is thought to have been the primary reason he also went down in history as the first Roman emperor to be assassinated. He's the third child born to Germanicus, the legendary Roman general and adopted son of the emperor Tiberius and grandson of the Emperor Augustus on his mother's side, so he'd grown up around Roman soldiers and powerful leaders. His youth was rife with difficulties, though. In 19 AD, Caligula's father died under questionable circumstances, leaving his mother, Agrippina the Elder, to manage a strenuous relationship with the Emperor Tiberius. Shortly after the death of his father, Caligula was sent to live with his great-grandmother, Livia. When she died two years later, he was sent to live with his grandmother, Antonia. When the Emperor Tiberius took ill and secluded himself on the island of Capri, he called for Caligula to be with him there on the island. In 31 AD, Caligula accepted the invitation and went to tend to his adoptive grandfather. During that time, Emperor Tiberius ordered the exile of Caligula's mother and two brothers. They later died, leaving him as the sole male heir of Germanicus. It's said that even in his illness, Tiberius could tell that Caligula was not suitable to reign. The emperor referred to him as a viper that he thought would be unleashed on all of Rome. So Caligula was assigned only menial tasks and held no major offices between 31 and 37 AD. When Tiberius died in 37 AD, the Roman people received their new emperor with open arms, largely based on the fact that his father, Germanicus, had been so popular and well-loved. They were hopeful for a ruler who would demonstrate more warmth and charity than had Tiberius, who was notably isolated and stingy during his decades-long reign. The beginning of Caligula's reign did go well. He was a strong leader, compassionate, smart, and decisive. His first order of business was to pay off all the former emperor's debts. He also honored his slain family by retrieving their remains and giving them a proper Roman burial. He gave the Praetorian Guard a handsome bonus, recalled all exiles, and compensated those whom he thought had been wrongly taxed. Not long into his reign, however, he fell ill and is said to have slipped into a coma. When he awoke, he was a very different man. And again, different sources have different accounts, so we don't know how much salt to take with all of these facts. Caligula had Tiberius Gemellus killed, who was his joint successor, and began to pursue the sexual appetite he had for his female siblings. He particularly liked his sister, Drusilla, whom he later married and impregnated. Not only did he have conjugal relations with them, but he also prostituted them out to other men, effectively turning the palace into a brothel. After Drusilla's death, Caligula married twice more. Both marriages were short-lived. In 38 AD, just one year after taking office, he married a fourth time to Melonia Caconia. Caligula was not at all concerned about the expansion of his empire, nor did he allocate any resources to defeating his enemies. In just a few months, he managed to waste the entire fortune left by the Emperor Tiberius, a fortune it had taken the former emperor 22 years of collect and tribute. In an effort to increase the amount of money available for his personal use, Caligula ordered all wealthy citizens to name him as the sole heir to their estates upon their deaths. Once that law was in place, he then began a campaign of falsely accusing, fining, and killing wealthy citizens to get their money. He also tried and killed his wealthiest subjects for treason on charges of blasphemy so that he might receive their estates. He levied taxes on everything from marriage to prostitution, and caused starvation in parts of his empire by claiming large areas of arable land for his own private use. He auctioned the lives of gladiators and claimed the plunder that soldiers had acquired from spoils during war. Despite the fact that he quickly depleted the treasury and began heavily taxing his subjects, Caligula embarked on several vanity construction projects. He wanted a giant floating bridge built across a bay in Naples in order to prove wrong the astrologer Trusillus who said that Caligula had no more chance of becoming emperor than of crossing the Bay of Bae on horseback. According to the Roman historian Suetonius, he crafted a solution by doing the following. He devised a novel and unheard of kind of pageant, for he bridged the gap between Bae and the mole at Patoioli, a distance of about 3,600 paces, by bringing together merchant ships from all sides and anchoring them in a double line, after which a mound of earth was heaped upon them and fashioned in the manner of the Appian Way. Over this bridge, he rode back and forth for two successive days attended by the entire Praetorian Guard and a company of his friends in Gallic chariots. As he rode back and forth on horseback, Caligula made sure to wear the breastplate of Alexander the Great to shore up his military bona fides. He never actually attempted to go to war, but he did commission the construction of two large warships that eventually burned without ever having been sailed. The closest he came to participating in war was in the 39 to 40 AD campaign, when he went to Gaul and marched to the shores with the military with the intent of invading Britain. Before his army launched its attack, he ordered them to stop and collect seashells. He called these the spoils of the conquered ocean and ordered his troops home. Caligula was perpetually disrespectful of the Senate, who during the reign of Tiberius had done much of the decision-making on their own, as Tiberius was quite antisocial. In response to their disapproval of him, Caligula did what he could to shame, embarrass, and humiliate senate members, both individually and collectively. One famous incident involved his beloved horse, Incitatus, whom Caligula clothed in the finest robes, suitable for most any member of the nobility. Oftentimes when invitations were sent from the palace, they were in the horse's name, and Incitatus was allowed to eat dinner at the emperor's table and it was claimed indirectly in some less reliable Roman sources that Caligula attempted to make Incantatus either a senator or a priest before his death. Caligula fully embraced emperor worship and encouraged others to worship him as a god. While previous emperors tolerated this practice, he allowed it and attempted to require it in the Roman provinces. Caligula tried to construct a huge statue of himself inside the temple in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship. This action would have nearly guaranteed a revolt from the Jews, who would have considered the construction a pagan slap to the face of their religion. Herod Agrippa, the descendant of the man who is said to have slaughtered dozens of infants in an attempt to kill Jesus, even considered this a terrible idea and convinced the emperor to relent. It was this consistent and unrelenting disrespect that eventually led to his murder. In early 41 AD, in a secluded hall in the basement of the palace, Caligula was stabbed 30 times in an attack led by Cassius Chaera, a guard whom Caligula had humiliated on multiple occasions. The painful and bloody attack didn't kill the emperor right away. But by the time his guard found him, the conspirators were long gone, and he eventually succumbed to his injuries. His wife, Caeconia and their infant child were murdered as well. Few sources contemporary with his life have survived, and his legacy is a bit open to embellishment, that's an understatement, But nevertheless, nearly all historians agree that his cruel temperament and extravagance defined him as an emperor. They made for a legacy that far surpassed any positive contributions he gave to Rome. Now, I said earlier that it's really tricky when we use sources that talk about the complete instability and insanity of a ruler. And let me just step back for a second and use Caligula as an example of how tricky that is. Now, if you're a fan of Roman history, your toes might have curled by a few things I said there. You would have thought... He really thinks that happens? That statement about Caligula is by a completely unreliable source, or it's an embellishment that was made decades or centuries after Caligula's life. And it wasn't a first-hand account at all. It was a story, not really about Caligula, but it was a, the writer trying to make a point about the time in which they lived. So how could he actually believe that's true? Well, you're right. There is a lot about Caligula that sounds so over-the-top. It sounds completely fictional like that account of him riding back and forth on a boat for two days or claiming the inheritance of every single person in the empire. How could you possibly even enforce that? How could you not have a massive revolt on your hands if you single-handedly try to steal the wealth of everyone? Nobody was that powerful that they could do something like that, not even an emperor of Rome. There's lots of things that are claimed by some in history about Caligula, about, like I said, incest, regicide, even pedophilia, rape, and all sorts of other things. Well, most of what we know of Caligula's life comes from six ancient writers. Seneca the Younger and Philo of Alexandria knew him personally. Tacitus and Josephus were born too late to know him, but they knew many people who knew him, so that makes them fairly reliable. Now, Suetonius, who has much negative to say about him, and Dio lived long after Caligula's death, 80 or 190 years after his reign, respectively. So those very wild accounts happen about 100 years after the fact. And you have to ask yourself, how likely is it that something written decades after somebody's life is more accurate than a first-hand account? And why wouldn't the first-hand accounts say those things? This gets into issues of historical criticism. How do we critique sources? And historians have dealt with this for over a century, and they'll put forward different procedures for source criticism in history that if all sources agree about an event, that you can consider it mostly to be true. But when sources disagree, you should prefer the one with the most authority, specifically eyewitness accounts. And you also have to ask, when you have a source, when was it written? Where was it produced? Was it produced close to the events in question? Who was it produced by? Was it someone who had an ideological axe to grind? And with other factors, we can litigate a source. Now, there are cases in history where we have a historian writing two different sources under two different circumstances, and we can get a taste of how wildly events can diverge. And we even have an example from the Byzantine historian Procopius, who talks about how his patron Justinian is insane, but he doesn't say that in another source, and we have reason to believe that he's embellishing for a political agenda. So I say all this to... Make you aware, dear listener, that when we talk about the insanity of a ruler, we have to be very careful. Let me just give an example of Procopius because he has a really interesting story. So Procopius had a front row seat to the most important events of the 6th century. He accompanied the Roman general Belisarius in the Wars of Justinian, the wars between Rome and Sassanid Persia, the Vandal War of Belisarius' successful campaign against the Vandal Kingdom in Roman Africa, and the Gothic War, the campaign by Belisarius to recapture Italy, then under the rule of the Ostrogoths. Procopius also wrote a panegyric for Justinian. A panegyric is a formal speech or written work that is meant for high praise of a person. It's not fact. It's kind of like a eulogy at a funeral or a public relations official. And that was the book The Buildings of Justinian, where he presents him as an idealized Christian emperor who builds churches for the glory of God and defends his subjects. And Builds aqueducts because he cares about his citizens' health. But there was another history of Justinian that was only discovered a thousand years after his life called the Secret History. It covers the same periods as the books on the history of Justinian's wars. But there's a completely different take on Justinian and his wife, Empress Theodora. We get the sense that he's become deeply disillusioned with him. Justinian is portrayed as cruel, incompetent, and venal. And Theodora, who was a former circus performer, which was practically a prostitute in those days, is portrayed as having absolutely endless lusts. And she's mean-spirited, shrewish, and calculating and cruel. And he has accounts of Theodora in her circus days performing almost naked in front of people and doing things with animals that would get you arrested today for public indecency. I won't get in the details. And there's another account where he describes Justinian as basically a demon. He was a monster whose head could vanish. At least according to this passage, here's what it says. And some of those who have been with Justinian at the palace late at night, men who are pure of spirit, have thought they saw a strange demoniac form taking his place. One man said that the emperor suddenly rose from his throne and walked about, and indeed he was never wont to remain sitting for long, and immediately Justinian's head vanished, while the rest of his body seemed to ebb and flow, whereas the beholder stood aghast and fearful, wondering if his eyes were deceiving him. But presently, he perceived the vanished head filling out and joining the body again, as strangely as it had left it. So why does he write such two different accounts? Was he paid by Justinian and he had to write a complimentary account of his life, but secretly he hated him, so he wrote his secret histories, hoping that at some point in the future, historians would find out the real story? Maybe, but historians have also argued that Procopius feared that a conspiracy could overthrow Justinian, so he had to hedge his bets. He wrote an exaggerated and prepared an exaggerated account to show, oh, I secretly hated Justinian all the, all this time. So if an enemy came to power, he could clear himself of all accusations of proximity with the former imperial power. So this was merely Procopius hedging his bets rather than actually trying to write history. But if we were to take the secret histories at face value, we would assume that Theodora is nothing but a circus prostitute. Justinian is actually a demon and completely incompetent. So, we have to look at the agendas of the writer himself and triangulate that against different sources. Hey, you Unknown History Podcast listeners, Scott here, letting you know that we are wrapping up the episode here. But in the full episode, I talk about a lot of other insane rulers, including French King Charles VI, who thought he was made of glass, Ottoman Sultan Ibrahim I, who practiced archery on palace servants and sent out his advisors to find the heaviest woman in the empire for his wife, or Turkmenistan President Turkmenbashi, who renamed the days of the week after himself and constructed an 80-foot golden statue that revolves to face the sun. If you'd like to check out that episode and the 270 other episodes I have, you can go to historyunplugpodcast.com or just look for History Unplugged on your favorite podcast listener, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever, and I think you'll find an episode that you like. A few fan favorites are Prostitution Throughout History, Sumerian Temple Priestesses, Ottoman Brothel Workers and Call Girls for the Medieval Clergy, or an episode on Richard Burton, the Victorian explorer who discovered the Kama Sutra, made a secret pilgrimage to Mecca, and knew 29 languages. And if you want to reach out, the best way is on Facebook. You can join the History Unplugged Facebook group, and I'll talk to you online.